All right, so glad to have everybody here with us this morning, uh, praying that God will richly uh, bless you, encourage you, challenge you, instruct you from his word, uh, the word of God this morning. You know, the New Testament church was driven by the life, the power, the energy of the Holy Spirit. And Paul said, in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Spirit, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And we are made new people. We are made in, into new people by the life and power of the Spirit. And Paul wrote a lot about this. We are born of the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. Uh, Paul wrote about the gifts of the Spirit and God's presence in the church meeting. And we need that. There, there can be no Christianity without power, without the indwelling Spirit, the Spirit of God sent into our hearts. But Paul also revealed the mind of the Spirit on practical issues in the church, like what kind of men should be appointed to lead the church, and what should go on and what should not go on in the church and in the church meeting. And this is very important too. In this letter, as we've said, Paul wrote to Timothy so that you may know how, to, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So here in this passage, in our passage this morning, Paul gets into some other practical issues for the church, and he tells us how to honor good elders and that we are to rebuke elders who sin. Starts out in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I want to share just a few thoughts about honor. First of all, in general, honor for one another is to be preeminent in the church family. Church is a place where we give honor to each other. Romans 12.10 urges us to outdo one another in showing honor. This honor is to be given to all believers, especially to those who might be considered less important. 1 Corinthians 12, 23 says, or Paul said, those parts of the body that we think less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. So we do not dismiss anybody in the church as unimportant. We honor all members of the body of Christ. And people who might be considered small or unimportant, people who might be ignored or rejected by the world, should find a place of honor. Every young person, every man, every woman should sense appreciation, respect, and a kind of dignity in family. We do not have, and this, this is for adults and this is young people, not have cool and uncool people. And I don't even know if young people use that term, terminology or not, so that, that may not connect at all. I'm not sure. 
we do not we don't have cool and uncool people. We do not have important and unimportant people. The Bible tells us to associate with the lowly and to honor all the members of So here in 1 Timothy 5 and actually at the beginning of the chapter in verse 3 if you remember Paul teaches us to honor widows. And now here later in chapter 5 Paul teaches us to honor elders. And the honor that we are to show widows includes financial support, at least in some cases. That is not the only way, certainly, but it is one of the ways that we show honor to those who are widows. And honoring elders also, at least in some cases, includes financial support. Paul says they are worthy of double honor. The term double honor here simply is an expression meaning much generosity. They're to be well honored and to be paid or supported well or generously. We all know that some men in churches or in Christian organizations, of course, are raking in millions of dollars and their net worth absolutely staggers. Imagination. I believe that is a stain on the church, a lot on the church, and many Christians naively give to these ministries without knowing that greed, greed for money is one of the main marks of false teaching. But on the other hand, it is God's wisdom and God's plan that elders should receive support from the church. And Paul said they should be given double honor if they are good man, if they rule well. If, in other words, if they are good managers or good shepherds of the church, they should not only be taken care of; they should be well taken care of. Bible teacher by the name of Stephen Paul said their salary should show honor for the man, for the office. Charles Spurgeon once heard that of a little church that was, uh, or I'm sorry, it wasn't necessarily a little church. He, he once heard how little a church was offering to pay their pastor. And he said, the only individual I know who could exist on such a salary is the angel Gabriel. He would need neither cash nor clothes. He could come down from heaven every Sunday morning and go back at night so I advise you to invite him to be your pastor. Paul said give double honor, especially for those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Paul considered preaching and teaching the most important work of the elders. Elders are not valued for their personal uh, charisma, dynamic personalities, uh, for, or for eloquence or the ability to entertain a crowd, but for their hard work at preaching and teaching the Word of God. This is what the church needs in an elder, and this is what the church should look for in an elder, and that is what should be honored. In. Paul supports his command to or to support elders from an Old Testament scripture and a quote from Jesus. Verse 18, 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. In other words, if an ox was not muzzled as it was threshing the grain, then the ox could eat as it was working. Paul said the same principle applied to elders. They should have their needs met as they work at preaching and then Paul also justifies his admonition to to court elders or paying elders by quoting Jesus. Jesus said, the laborer deserves his wages or the laborer is worthy of his wages. Matthew 10.10, Luke 10.7. 1 Corinthians 9.11 also teaches the same principle. Paul said, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you. Some think it, it is somehow less spiritual uh, to pay anyone for any work done in the church. God's word clearly teaches the opposite. And of course, just so you know, we have one elder, not in here, not in the room this morning. I'll talk about him. Josh, we support as a church. David and I are not supported uh, financially by the church, but Josh is. He works full-time here at the church, and it's good that we have him, very needed that we have him, and it is good that we support him. And I, I think that Josh is certainly worthy of double honor. Then Paul moves on from this teaching to deal with elders who fall into sin. Despite the precautions that Paul gave in, in chapter 3 about what kind of men qualify to be elders, the reality is that some elders do become ensnared in some kind of sin at some point in their life. And as distasteful as it might be, Elders who fall into sin must be rebuked, Paul said. And although he doesn't deal with it here, I think in some cases they must be removed from leadership. We want the church, just our human nature, we want the church to be all positive and happy. And, but it just isn't always that way. There's things that have to be dealt with. And sin especially in an elder, must be dealt with they are to be faithful to Christ. A Bible teacher by the name of Paul Washer, some of you have probably heard of him, he was asked as he was served on his panel, they, they threw out this question to the panel, uh, what is the greatest threat to the church in this generation? And I think everybody was expecting that what's happening in the culture, all that kind of stuff that's going on. But without a moment's hesitation, Paul Washer said, in answer to the question, what is the greatest threat to the church in this generation? He said, pastors. And he shocked everyone by saying that. But the greatest danger in the church is pastors who do not fear the Lord, 
pastors who live immoral and worldly lives, pastors who water down the Word of God to make it acceptable to our present culture, and this is a crisis in the church today. It really is. Pastors who sin in how they live or in what they teach must be rebuked, Paul said, or in some cases removed. But before Paul goes into this further, he provides a protection against false and frivolous accusations. I love just how thoroughly and how balanced uh, this, the Word of God is in the treatment of this subject. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, do not be, do not be, do not receive an accusation, do, just do not take it in, do not receive an accusation, do not be quick to believe an accusation. Uh, leaders are often accused of things that simply are not true. Some people are addicted to finding fault. Some people are addicted to finding fault and making accusations of others. And this makes them feel better about themselves or gives them a false sense of spirituality. People accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Luke 7.34 Paul was called a liar and a deceiver, among many other things. And said, I have served Christ through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters, and yet we are true. The Apostle John said, Diotrephes unjustly accuses us with malicious words. 3 John verse 9. So Paul knows the danger of receiving an accusation from just one person. An accusation can ruin a man, a person. It can ruin his wife and children and, and the church. So Paul urges caution here. And he says there must be two or three witnesses. Not two or three people who have heard the gossip, but two or three witnesses. Two or three who can actually substantiate the accusation or the sin in the elder's life. This is a safeguard from the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This is a safeguard against the fallibility of human perception. People get things wrong all the time. John Calvin said, Satan makes most people overly credulous to believe an accusation when they hear it. In other words, he's just saying that's, that's kind of a work of Satan in people's life. They're just so eager to believe something uh, that they hear against someone else. But, and this is kind of a big but, 
because Paul changes directions here. But where there is sin in the life of an elder, then that sin must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with clearly and publicly. It must not be ignored. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, and again, the context is elders. As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Paul said this direction to, to rebuke um, and to rebuke publicly is for those who persist in sin. An elder might stumble in something and once it is pointed out, he repents, he's, he's sorry, he, he, he clearly puts an end to it, stops. And in some situations, the church might just cover that with grace and go on. However, I do believe that some sins uh, disqualify elders from future official church ministry, such as when an elder becomes involved in open sexual sin or embezzling money. Uh, and I, let me be clear, elders, pastors who commit adultery, get involved in sexual sin, can repent and be forgiven and still have ministry to others. But in my opinion, in most cases where there is uh, adultery, those, other those kinds of sin, they have forfeited the office of elder because their lives do not meet the qualification of being above reproach, of being faithful to one woman, and of having a good reputation with those outside the church. Forgiving someone, and I'm talking specifically an elder, forgiving an elder does not always mean putting that person back in the same position as a shepherd of the flock. Paul gives three commands for dealing with elders living in sin. First, he says, rebuke them. Rebuke means to clearly point out a sin and to say, that is wrong. That's a sin. That's wrong what you're doing. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, better is open rebuke Than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds from a friend. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, a, a true friend will seek to stop you from sinning. Someone who doesn't care about you will let you keep sinning. From, from the, that passage in Proverbs, they'll let you keep sinning and they'll keep kissing you is basically what that verse in Proverbs says. A true friend will wound you by a rebuke. And that's, Paul says, that's, that's true love. That's a faithful friend who will do that. However, I think everybody should understand that if you rebuke someone, if you rebuke anyone in the church today for any sin, you will likely be accused of being hateful, legalistic, abusive, and having no grace for people, and on and on and on. 
But the Bible teaches that sin is so dangerous. Peter says sin wages war against your soul. The Bible teaches that sin is so dangerous to the church that those who love the Lord and their elders will confront sin. Secondly, Paul said, do this in the presence of all. Wow. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Elders live in front of the church, so to speak. They are to be examples to the flock. Peter said elders are to prove to be examples to the flock. They're not to lord it over the flock, but they're to prove to be examples to the flock. And when elders fall into sin, people need to see that their sin is confronted and not covered up. And this is not to be mean or harsh. It is being loving and responsible not only to the elder, but also to the whole church. Yeah, you know, in some ways it's a pretty sober passage. Serious stuff. And part of the purpose of rebuking the elder and doing it publicly, Paul said, is to instill a fear of sinning in everyone else. The New American Standard says, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I mean, Paul wanted the church to tremble. He wanted the church to have a fear of falling into sin. The, the thought that we should be fearful of sinning is so foreign to our contemporary Christian church. church. I, bet, I mean, I bet you've read this in, in, in many, many churches today. They would say, well, that can't be in the Bible. But having a fear of sin is, is a good thing. Paul, Paul wanted this procedure to take place so that a fear of sinning would fall on the rest of the church. John Wesley said, you give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen, such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. I mean, part of, our, part of the problem in the church today is, is, the church, is that we don't fear sin. And so Paul wants that to take place place and it's it's a good thing and if our preaching and teaching here at real life church I mean certainly not the only thing that we want to steal in people is, is fear I mean you know that I mean we we uh, we want people to walk in the freedom and joy and grace the abundant grace the unfathomable grace of, of God but if our teaching and preaching here at real life church has not helped you to fear sinning then we have not done our job very well as elders. The essence of the gospel is immediate and total forgiveness of all our sins, but then the work of the gospel in our hearts is then to cause us to hate and fear sin. God's grace, God's grace lavishes us with forgiveness, but that same grace 
comes into our heart and also teaches us to say no to sin. Next, uh, Paul said that elders should be treated fairly but not given special treatment. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There should be no bias, no partiality in how elders are dealt with. Uh, an elder should not be shielded from the consequences of his sin because he is well-liked or because he has made the church grow or even has led a lot of people to Christ. Some people, some churches, I should say, cover up their pastor's sins because they think if we deal with his sin, it will hurt our growth and our image as a church. One of the big problems in Christian organizations that are not churches is that because they are not a church, they often do not have the safeguards of a church. Often the leader has so much power in these Christian organizations that in reality he or she is not accountable to anyone. There's, there are, there's no church and there's no elders to confront him or her when he falls into sexual sin or sins of greed or misuse of money. And we hear of that happening all the time. Then Paul says something quite amazing that I want to draw your attention to in verse 21. After he had given these instructions to read rebuke the elders who sin. Do it publicly or in the presence of all. He said, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Wow. Should that make us tremble? I charge you in the presence presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. I think Paul felt the need to say that because we can so easily be intimidated by people. We, in other words, we stop living our lives in the presence of God and we start living our lives in the presence of people. People can sway us to condemn an innocent person. Look what happened to Jesus. Pharisees went through. They stirred up the crowd to condemn an innocent man. People can, can, can be swayed, moved by other people. Or people can intimidate us to remain silent when someone is clearly sinning and a rebuke is desperately needed. The fear of man, the fear of people can keep us from doing what we're supposed to do. So, so Paul said, I make this charge in the presence of God to keep these rules. 
Then verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. We're to be patient in appointing someone as an elder And Paul told Timothy specifically, don't be hasty in laying your hands on someone so that you don't have to deal with their sin after they become an elder. Once you commission someone to leadership, if they sin, that in some way associates you with their sin because you laid your hands on them and commissioned them to be an elder. And so Paul says, be careful, be cautious, wait, don't, don't be hasty, because he said, I want you to keep yourself pure in this. Then something I think ha very interesting happens in verse 23, and it just it communicates how uh, the, the personal... Uh, nature of Paul's relationship with his dear son Timothy we've talked about that in the church how we're a family we're connected it's it's very relational and this this uh, uh, verse 23 communicates this I think in such a real way Paul said Timothy no longer drink only water but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments I mean right in the midst of this very serious, sober uh, message, uh, something comes to Paul's mind and he's, he's concerned about Timothy's uh, stomach ailments. And so he just, he drops everything he's writing about and he says, Timothy, my dear friend, my, my son in the faith, here, don't drink water only, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So I'm going to just say a couple things quickly about this kind of like Paul does and then I'm going to get back to the subject at hand like Paul does three things I would say from this or lessons maybe Paul was concerned about Timothy's health and when you love somebody you're concerned about their health and he was concerned about Timothy's soul but also his body as well and we should be too we, we care about whole people. We care about them body, soul, and spirit. And we, we, we want, we, in the church, we want to love one another and care for one another in terms of their body, soul, and spirit. Number two, uh, if you have frequent ailments, you are not alone. Timothy um, had frequent ailments. Timothy was Paul's associate he acted as Paul's representative in the gospel. He was a, a leading figure in the New Testament uh, work of the, of the New Testament church. But he had frequent ailments. And so you're not alone if you um, have just, you know, things that you continually struggle with or suffer with in your body. The third lesson, if you have frequent ailments, do something about them if you possibly can and this was basically what Paul was saying to, to Timothy. Uh, you know, I want you to take a little wine along with your water. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons for that. Uh, I'm not going to get into teaching about uh, 
wine and all of that. I'm just going to say that uh, if you have frequent ailments, do something about them if you possibly can. Uh, change your diet, uh, get medical attention, certainly get prayer, get ongoing prayer. But Paul wanted these frequent ailments to be alleviated in Timothy as much as he could. So he urged him to do whatever he could to, um, to be free from, from those. All right, let's go back to the topic at hand. In verse 24 and 25, Paul comes right back to why we should be patient in appointing leaders. He said the sins of some people are evident or conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous or evident, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul's simply saying that you can see some people's sins right away. Other people's sins don't show up for a while. But they will show up, he says. And he says the good things that a person done does will also become evident. People will tell you who they are, just wait. Their character will become evident and once it becomes evident over time, that is the time to lay your hands on them or to appoint them as an elder or to church leadership. Now, one application of this truth for all of us is, is to not try to hide our sin or to just cover it up. Paul said, it will become evident at some point. It might not become evident for a while, but it will become evident. And we're, we're never told to, to, to cover up, to hide, uh, to, try to, to, to try to keep others from finding out about our sin. We should never cover it up without repenting and forsaking it. You know, I recently read a, a biography. I'm not sure I'd necessarily recommend it, but it was about a worship uh, leader, singer from back in the 70s. His name was Chuck Gerard. He actually wrote a lot of really good songs. Uh, but in his biography, he told of, and, and he had been heavily into drugs and alcoholism before he came to Christ. But in his biography, he told of sinking back into alcoholism and even as he was singing and leading worship, and he, he told, uh, hor horribly sad, he told about just trying to cover, cover the smell of alcohol continually with breath mints before going out to lead worship. Well, of course, that didn't turn out well. Eventually, his sin came to the light. And fortunately for him, he was very repentant and humbled himself and uh, turned away from that and got healed and well and, and, and did very well for a long time after that. But the point is, eventually what we are and what we're doing uh, becomes known. Sin becomes evident. So don't hide sin. Confess it and forsake it. 
you know, Hebrews says that Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted to sin. You know, so when, when you feel tempted to sin, and we all are, we all experience that. When we're tempted to sin, we don't just, we don't try to throw a blanket over that. No, we go right to Jesus and say, I need help with this temptation. And the scripture, again, says he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. But, you know, he can't help you if you're trying to hide your sin. If you're trying to cover it up, he can't help you. No, you've got to walk in the light, as, as John says. You, just, you bring it out in the light. You come to Jesus and say, I'm struggling with this. Help me, Jesus, with this temptation to sin. You know, in the same way, the good that we do will, will become known too. Uh, Psalm 37 says, God will bring forth our righteousness like the noonday sun. And the instruction there is, is to do good and to wait for the Lord. And that's an encouragement too. Um, for young men perhaps in the church that want to serve the Lord and maybe go into full-time Christian work or to, be, or, or to become an elder or pastor in the church, um, don't, don't be impatient for that appointment to come. Do good and wait for the Lord and your life will become evident to all. Your heart and what you're doing will become evident. Just wait for the Lord. But the main takeaway this morning is, I think, is that the church desperately needs good, faithful elders, pastors who work hard at teaching and preaching the Word of God and who live godly lives. And Paul said to honor those who do this. Or actually, he says they're worthy of double honor. Treat them well, but rebuke those living in sin. You know, church is a place of joy and singing and smiles and hugs and laughter even, uh, but it is also a place of, of serious business. The church is to be holy. The church is to be holy. We are, we are to live holy lives in the church. And especially, Paul makes clear that the elders, pastors, must live holy lives as examples to the flock. All right, let's pray. Let's stand. Let's stand up and pray.